I want to turn your attention to the book of Colossians just for a few moments here this morning. And as you turn to the book of Colossians, I want to ask who was that baby that was born in the manger? Who was this child? And I want to go back with you to that early morning, nearly 2,000 years ago. A baby, of course, was born in Bethlehem, but not just any baby, as we know, but the son of the living God, God himself incarnated in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you think about what happened on that morning, I don't think we'll ever be able to fathom what it meant for God to be born in a manger. Even as I've been in Christ for many years now, it seems with each passing year, the miracle of the incarnation comes greater in my own mind than the previous year. I mean, how do you explain that He, the Lord Jesus Christ, created the world by the word of His power, and yet now He enters into life As an infant, I don't believe we'll never comprehend why he who was so infinitely rich would become poor, assume human nature, and enter into a world that he knew would reject him and would kill him. Can anyone ever explain how God became a baby? And yet the scripture is absolutely clear that he did, and that without ever giving up his divine nature or diminishing His own deity, he was born into our world as an infant, the scriptures tell us. I mean, how can that be true? Well, the the Bible tells us that he was fully human and fully God. We know that. Many have asked, who was this child? Remember in John, in John 1.1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. And then it tells us in John 1 14 that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was God from all eternity. We ask that question, who was that baby or this baby? And the answer is, it's God. In fact, in Isaiah 7 14, you remember that The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, it says there, a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name, what? Emmanuel, God with us. I mean, the evidence is overwhelming that this child in the manger was the son of God. This child in the manger is the second person of the Trinity. I mean, for one thing, just certainly as we've been studying the Gospel of John, He was omniscient. It says in John 2 that he knew what was in all men's hearts. He not only knows what takes place, but he knows what we think and what's on the inside of our heart. It says in John 1 that he knew Nathaniel even before he met him and called him. In John chapter 4, remember in the discussion with the woman at the well, he knew all about the woman and knew all about her family life and her marriage history. He's omniscient. He is God in the flesh, but Jesus also did the works of God, did he not? Only God can give blind, a blind man eyes to see. Only God can open ears that have never heard. Only God can restore a withered hand by asking the man to stretch it out. 
Only God can feed feed 5,000 basically out of nothing. Only God can raise the dead. Only God can cleanse the leper's skin. And only God can heal a little girl from a distance and just give the word. The point being is that the baby in the manger was God in the flesh. I love that uh, song that is now some years dated, Mary Did You Know, by Mark Lowry. And the stanzas, a couple of them at least, say this, Mary, did you know that your baby boy will give sight to the blind man? Did you know that your baby boy would calm a storm with his hand? Did you know that your baby boy has walked where angels trod, and when you kiss your little baby, you've kissed the face of God? It's unbelievable when you think of the incarnation. One of the stanzas said, Mary, did you know that your baby boy is Lord of all creation? Did you know that your baby boy will one day rule the nations? Did you know that your baby boy was heaven's perfect lamb and that sleeping child you're holding is the great I am? It's a fabulous song. I mean, who was that baby that was born and what should be our response to him? And lest we think that, you know, we just do this at Christmas and obviously we speak on the Lord Jesus Christ These issues are always open to debate in the minds of some who Jesus is. In fact, just a couple weeks ago, Andy Stanley, my son sent me this text, Andy Stanley, uh, founder of North Point Ministries, I think you well know his father is Charles Stanley, and they would say that Andy Stanley might have the biggest church in all of America, 30,000 people come to worship at it over a weekend. And he said this just a couple weeks back on December 3rd, he said that one of the challenging things, this is from his own mouth, about Christmas is the unbelievable nature of the stories in the Bible describing Jesus' miraculous conception. In other words, he called them, um, well, as, as he said there, unbelievable, not inconceivable about the virgin birth. He said this, quote, a lot of people don't believe it. And he said, I understand that, Stanley said. Maybe the thought is they had to come up with some kind of myth about the birth of Jesus to give him street cred later on. Maybe that's where it came from. So in other words, it's in the Bible, but you don't necessarily have to believe it. Stanley went on to say this, Matthew gives us a version of his birth. He said, Luke does, but he said, Mark and John, they don't even mention it, and a lot has been made about that, end of quote. I thought to myself, there's not a lot made about that. The Gospels have their own unique purpose. Some mention other facets of the life of Christ than others. There's nothing to make mention that the virgin birth is not in two of the four Gospels. But then here's what he said. He's less concerned about the virgin birth than with the resurrection. Quote, if somebody can predict their own death and their own resurrection, I'm not all that concerned about how they got into the world because the whole resurrection thing is so amazing. He said Christianity doesn't hinge on the truth uh, or even the stories around the birth of Jesus. Stanley said it really hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. And I thought to myself, nothing could be further from the truth. 
to have a man that claims to be an evangelical stand up and say that the virgin birth, it's really maybe more of a nice story and we don't have to, you know, put our faith on the foundation of that. Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, the resurrection as well as the virgin birth are immensely important. So I want to take you just for a few brief moments to the book of Colossians, okay? And, and maybe just as you turn to chapter 1, the Colossian people had uh, errors all over in who they thought Christ was. And I thought because I spoke of his birth that, uh, on Friday that maybe I would just tell you about a uniqueness of who Christ is. But the Colossians were filled with error. It kind of reminds me of our own day when I think of the Colossian church, the church at Colossae. They mixed Christianity with a dash. It was like they were cooking. But they mixed Christianity with a dash of Jewish legalism, a pound of pagan mythology. And what these false teachers had done in Colossae was concoct kind of a, their own homespun religion, if you will. They taught that faith in Christ wasn't enough. You needed something else is what they taught. They taught Christ in chapter 2 plus philosophy. They taught Christ plus legalism in chapter 2. They taught it was Christ plus a little mysticism added. Or Christ plus asceticism. They had religious festivals. They had astrology. They had worship of angels. They had visions. And all of these were channels to what they thought was spiritual enlightenment. And in the midst of it all, they actually dethroned the person of Christ. And I don't just think that's a first century problem. Christians in every generation have been tempted to kind of season their theology to the taste of the current culture. The problem, though, beloved, is that Christ cannot be mixed with philosophies of the world. He stands alone. And the Bible tells us that he is supreme over all. And so to combat this Colossian heresy... Paul delineates in the book of Colossians and certainly in chapter 1, one of the most beautiful Christologies ever found anywhere in the New Testament. It is a glorious description of the preeminence of Jesus Christ. And if I just put it in a nutshell for you, the Colossian theme was, is Jesus is all you need. He's all you need. There is no other celestial power. There is no other heavenly vision. There is no dream that we need. There is no earthly philosophy that is needed. Here's the message of Colossians, that Jesus is all sufficient. And what Paul does then in Colossians is go on to cite in that chapter a number of declarations about Christ that reveal his true identity and establish his preeminence in our life. And for our time this morning, it's Christmas Sunday, rather than calling them a number of declarations, may I just submit to you one for our time. Just one declaration in Colossians 1 about Christ that reveals his true identity and establishes his preeminence in our life, and we'll just call it, there's no points to it, is this, is that Jesus is the revelation of God. Jesus is the revelation of God. In fact, look in your Bible, if you have it open there, Colossians 1.15. It just profoundly states there that he is the image 
of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. It is an amazing statement, is it not? That he is, read it again, the image of the invisible God. In other words, Jesus is the something you can see of the something you can't see or cannot be seen. Look at that statement there in 15. It says he is the image, and then it uses this word of the invisible God. Now we know that, beloved, from our teaching in the Gospel of John, that God the Father in the Scripture is invisible. We know that from statements like this in Exodus thirty-three twenty, that God told Moses, you cannot see my face for no man can see my face and what? Live. God in the scriptures is invisible. In fact, it says back in John five thirty-seven, Jesus said that the father bore witness about me. And then he told the people listening, you have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. In other words, you haven't heard his voice, you haven't seen his form. Do you remember when the Apostle Paul was writing to his young son in the faith, Timothy, and as Paul began to delineate his own personal testimony, he finished in a doxology there and said, and I think you know it in 117, uh, to the king, eternal, immortal, what? Invisible. In fact, we have a song that sometimes we sing. He is eternal. He is immortal. He is invisible. 1 Timothy 1.17. So as you glance down at 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. We understand that. And we've answered that question in John's gospel, why is God invisible? And the truth is because in John chapter 4, God is a, <clears throat> he's a spirit. So he's writing here. And look what he says in verse 15 about Christ. He says, he is, and then he says, the image of the invisible God. Now he notes there in verse 15 that he, and of course he's referencing the Father, Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, it's antecedent. Go back to verse 13 when it's speaking of the work of Christ, that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom. And here's the object of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, and that one in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins, he is the image of the invisible God. He's referring to the person of Christ. Look down in your scripture just one more minute in verse 15. It could be that that second word, at least in the ESV, is the most important verse in the whole text where it said, he is. In other words, you say, why is that? Well, because Paul is writing about a man who was nailed on a cross and witnessed to die by an entire community about 30 years earlier. Yet he speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ in the present tense. He is the image of the invisible God. But look again at verse 15. It says there, of the person of Christ, he calls him the image of the invisible God. The the Greek term there, maybe you've heard of that before. It's the word icon. It's how you would transliterate that and spell that in Greek. Obviously, we get our English word icon from that. 
But when it speaks of the person of Christ, it speaks of him as, here's what the word means, as the perfect replica. It speaks of Christ as the precise copy, if you will. It speaks of Christ being the image. The ideal is a duplicate. And from this, we get our word icon referring to a statue. It's used in, in Matthew twenty two twenty of Caesar's portrait that would be imprinted onto a coin. And so if you put all that together, beloved, here's what the text is saying, is that the invisible God has been made visible in Christ. It is a profound Christology there. In other words, we see God by looking at Christ By looking at Jesus. And here it's not just a picture of God. It is the very revelation of God. In other words, in so many words, right here in a short amount of words, he says Jesus is the revealer of God. Or to put it another way, in Jesus, the invisible God is revealed. In fact, let me just show you this. Go back to John just one moment in John chapter 1. Here that statement is made clear in this cross-reference. It is one of my favorite verses. I have a number of them, but I, I love this one. In John 1.18, when Jesus is speaking thereafter, it establishes the fact that the Word was God, one one. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And now this profound statement in 118. No one has ever seen God. Take that as dot semicolon. The only God, speaking of Jesus, who is at the Father's side, He, I love that statement, has made Himself known. He, Jesus, has made Himself known. He has made the person of God known. And when it says there made him known, it's the word that we get for explaining something. The idea of sometimes we use that word in hermeneutics of exegesis to explain the text. And what that text is saying there is that he, Jesus, has explained the person and the character of God. You say, well, how does he do that? Go back to Colossians 1. Here's how he profoundly does that. Here's what the text says about that. You know, just to be honest with you, it really doesn't matter what Andy Stanley says, does it? I mean, I just see that and think, that's wrong. And I think Al Mohler took him to task on that. It's just wrong. What matters is not what he thinks. What matters is what the text says. And what the Bible says here is that he, the Father, Son, is, present tense, the image, the icon of the invisible God. And it said in 118, he has explained them. You say, well, how so? Look at Colossians 119. It says there, for in him, that's Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In other words, all the divine power, all of the attributes of God... All of the character of God reside in the person of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it says there. In Him was the fullness of God was well pleased to dwell. You know, it's interesting. When you look at the Coloss- Colossi, it's the name of the city, their error. 
they kind of added a dash of this, as I mentioned, a pound of this. They had an emanation of this. They had an angelic vision here. They had a dream here. And they kind of all put it together in a kind of a, a, a quilt work form. And they all made some kind of religious concoction out of it. What Paul says, though, is no. All the fullness of God isn't revealed in other emanations, isn't revealed in other visions, isn't revealed in people's dreams. It's revealed in the person of Christ. And it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. Beloved, look just at the next chapter in chapter 2, 9, where it says, I love this statement, for in Him, I love this, the whole fullness of deity dwells, what? Bodily. In other words, the Godhead dwells in Jesus Christ. That when you see Jesus, he reveals the person of God. The invisible God, whom no one can see, has been revealed in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He is the perfect image of God. Now certainly, we bear the Imago Dei, the image of God, right? Although we would never be described like Colossians 2.9. We are not the perfect image of God. We are obviously, we know that, fallen creatures. But Jesus is the perfect image of God. In other words, nothing is lacking in the person of Christ. He is God in the fullest possible sense. God in the flesh. In fact, look over in your Bible, just at 2 Corinthians for a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Another grand statement on the person of Christ and even highlighting biblically and illustrating this very point. Many of you know this one in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 in verse 4. In their case, the God of this world, obviously Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is, what? There it is. The image of God. In fact, if you go down to verse 6, for God who said light shall shine out of the darkness has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, he is the exact representation of God himself Paul says that the light of the glory of God is imaged, if you will, in the face of Jesus Christ. And that in Jesus Christ, God himself uh, has become manifest. So, beloved, it is in Christ the invisible God has become visible so that we see God, who is invisible, in the person of Christ. And he's fully manifested his person in the person of his Son, And of course, this is what Jesus taught and this is what Jesus preached. And this is, of course, why they wanted to crucify Jesus. Remember in John eight fifty eight, he said, before Abraham was, I, what, am. And they picked up stones to, to kill him. In John ten thirty, he said, I and the Father are one. And the response was the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. But best of all, do you remember, beloved, when Jesus said to Philip that he who has seen me has seen, what? The Father. If you've seen the person of Christ, you've seen the Father. In other words, the fullness dwells in him. 
So beloved, on this Christmas morning, it's amazing, isn't it? That as we worship and give glory to the one who was born, that one who was born was God in the flesh and in his bodily form dwelt all the deity of the Godhead. In fact, Hebrews puts it this way. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. It says whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom it says there that he created the world. And then it says this. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. I love that phrase, the exact imprint. It's, it's the ideal of a word there of an engraving stamp. In other words, Jesus Christ is the very likeness of God. You might ask the question, why would he leave glory above? Why would he leave glory above and be born in such a lowly manner? Why would he, the creator of the world, the one worthy of all praise, come to earth and suffer and die in such a painful death? Well, it's there in Colossians 1. Would you look at it? It's in Colossians 1.20. It says in 19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. But it says very clearly in 20, Through him and through him to, watch the language, reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Well, it says there that he made peace, did he not, between God and man. I think we know the, the gospel here, that all have sinned and fallen, what? Short of the glory of God. The writer in Romans, quoting out of the Old Testament, says there is none righteous, no, not, what? One. It says in 323, all have sinned, as I mentioned. God in Psalm 11 or excuse me, in 7.11 is a righteous judge. And it says there in Psalm 7.11 that he feels indignation every day. In other words, bound up in the holy character of God, beloved, is such a hatred for sin that we have no idea of. It emanates out of his character because it's so holy and so pure. In fact, the only response of a holy God to our sin is more than we can bear because you know and I know that it says in Romans 6.23 that the wages of those sin is what? It's death. In fact, it says back in Psalm 7.12, if a man does not repent, God will sharpen his sword. It says that he has bent and readied his bow. His bow. In other words, he's holy. He has to punish sin. So what he does then is only Jesus, because he's both God and man, could ever resolve the conflict. He lived as a man, but without sin. He died as a sacrifice, a spotless lamb of God, and he offers himself for our sin. So, beloved, here's the purity of the gospel. Jesus takes the hand of the repentant, yielding sinner and the outstretched hand, if you will, of a holy yet loving God and he joins the two. He can forgive sins and reconcile us to God and make peace 
It says very clearly in Colossians 1.20, by the blood of his cross. And you know what, beloved? God's not even reluctant for peace and reconciliation to occur. Rather, this is the very reason that he sent his only begotten son into the world. He sent him into the world, Matthew 1.21. Remember there at the birth of Christ where it says he will save his people from their what? Sins. Who was this child? Well, he's God. You say, what's the response? Just one. Look at verse 18. It says there, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead. And you might just, I don't want you to get for confused there. You can see that phrase, he is the firstborn from the dead. You, if you look back up at 115, it says that he's the firstborn of all creation. He's not talking about a time sequence there. He's using a Greek word, prototokos there, to speak of the firstborn. And it's not talking about a time relationship. It's talking about the preeminence of it. In other words, he's the firstborn. He's the preeminent one in all of creation. And now in verse 18, he is the firstborn from the dead. He's certainly not the firstborn that was ever raised from the dead. He raised people from the dead in his life. But what the scripture is saying is that out of all the people that have been raised, he is prototokos. He is the preeminent one. Out of all the people that have been raised, he's the one that's supreme. Out of all of his creation, he's the one that is supreme. And then it just leads to one conclusion for all of you. Okay, This is it right here. Look at it in verse 18. Here's the whole view of the birth of Christ. That in everything, 118 towards the end, that in everything he might be, what? Preeminent. I think it says in the NASB that in everything he might have supremacy is the thought. So beloved, here it is. It means that he needs to have first place in your families. In other words, this is who he is. This is what the scriptures declare. He ought to have be first place. He ought to be preeminent. He ought to be supreme in everything. He ought to be first place in your dating relationships. He ought to be first place in your marriage. He ought to be first place in your job. He ought to be preeminent in your business. He ought to be preeminent in your real estate. He needs to be preeminent in your missions. He needs to be preeminent in your ministry. He needs to be first place in your conversation. Meaning that out of your mouth should no foul words ever come. Ever. I'm surprised about some of the conversations that I hear about sometimes. You can't be one thing in the house of God and then go out Monday through Friday and live with another tongue. Listen, if, he, if this is who he is, and he is, then he ought to have first place in all of your conversations, right? All of your speech, all of what you put into your mind. Athletes, men, women, he ought to be first place in your athletics, first place in your Christmas celebrations, first place in your music, first place in your art, first place in your worship. That's the point of 118, that the one who's preeminent, that he would be preeminent in everything the text says. Hey, we've sang a couple hymns, haven't we? And um, there's one that's regarded to be the greatest Christmas hymn ever. 
I, I mean, I suppose that's somewhat subjective, isn't it? Um, but it was a hymn that some would say uh, is and should be the greatest hymn ever written for Christmas. And it was written by Charles Wesley, and he wrote it, and kind of nothing ever came out of the song. Just kind of had a little fanfare when he penned it. Then it was taken again by George Whitfield, who the great evangelist who fine-tuned the hymn. And then it was set to music eventually by a man by the name of Felix Mendelssohn. And it became, in some people's mind and heart, the greatest hymn. It's Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Listen to the words. It's the words. Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Glory to the newborn King. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners, what? Reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumphs of the skies, with angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time behold him come, offspring of the favored one. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead seen, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. That says it all, doesn't it?